an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo News Radio. Heard with Dave Ross and Colleen O'Brien Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, a senator from the Evergreen State made a prediction on national radio in March 1938 about what would happen next, with unfortunate parallels to 2022. We know what will happen to freedom of speech and of the press. They will be suppressed. Democratic processes for 7 million Austrians are extinct. And then, from the archives, revisiting the secret underground control room in the old Battery Street Tunnel. This is the control room in the Battery Street Tunnel, um, built in 1954. Not much at all has changed. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Our resident historian Felix Bunnell joins us on Fridays for All Over the Map, which is his quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, the Sounders have plans to build a new headquarters at the old Long Acres site near South Center. And a local historian is wondering what this might mean for the, quote, ruins that remain from the old racing track. Felix. Yeah, Long Acres, that was the old thoroughbred horse racing track, operated from 1933 to 1992. It was torn down in the 90s. Boeing built their commercial airplane headquarters there, and then Boeing moved out just about a year ago. So it's exciting news that Sounders announced last week the team will mark its 50th anniversary in 2024 with a grand opening of new headquarters and a practice facility at the old Long Acres site. Uh, majority owner Adrian Hanauer, he's a history guy. He was a board member at Mohai when I was there 20 years ago. Um, and from the announcement event and from the team website, it's clear they care about and they embrace the horse racing history. The official name of the headquarters will be Sounders FC Center at Long Acres, so they get it. Um, but I heard from historian and blogger Robin Adams. Um, we met her last month. She discovered the old powder house we talked about. Now, I met up with her out at the old Long Acre site yesterday to take a look around. They're going to build something spectacular here. And I, loving Long Acres, was concerned and reached out to you and to Liz at the Britain Museum asking if we knew if this was going to be preserved. And is it our chance to build a museum or a walking site that can show people this is what's left, this was what was here? Because... A good portion of the track is left, the green wall, the foundations, there's a lot of stuff still here. And I had no idea, but when the track was demolished nearly 30 years ago, they left most of the concrete foundations from the grandstand. There's hundreds of square feet of terracotta tiled floor just sitting there from the bedding, bedding window areas and other public spaces. There's also a concrete wall, probably from the 1930s, still painted green, that lined the edge of the track. It must be hundreds and hundreds of feet long. This is all in an area next to the light rail station down there. Now, Robin Adams hopes that some aspect of the old Long Acres ruins can be preserved by the Sounders. Maybe there can be historic markers for a self-guided history walk. I reached out to the Sounders yesterday and didn't expect to hear back yet, and they haven't. It's a pretty short time. I also checked in with Cairo News Radio's resident Long Acres expert, that's Dory Monson. He confirmed the authenticity of the red tiles. He spent a lot of time standing there and betting from that spot. He was actually there on September 21st, 1992, doing his old King 1090 show on the last day the track was in business. He even tried to call the final race ever live on the radio. I got really choked up as they hit the home stretch. And, and that was the first time that opened the floodgates for, <laughs> for the rest of my career. 
<laughs> so lots of history there, lots of Dory tears, and now, thanks to the Sounders, lots of future at Long Acres, too. Um, did you ever play the ponies at Long Acres, Dave? I, uh, I never bet on a pony at Long Acres. Uh, I bet once on a race in Florida, and I <laughs> lost, and I said, oh, this is a really easy way to lose money, and so never bet again. But I did, I did do a feature down there with the, uh, with the trainers in the, in the stables, and it was amazing seeing some of those animals up close. It was an incredible sight. Yeah, cool spot. Great place for the Sounders to be. Felix Bunnell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Whether we travel by water, land, or air, we are thrilled by the scenic grandeur of the evergreen state. When the lights go on again all over the world. It is time now for our resident historian, Felix Bunnell. The standoff between Russia and Ukraine has some parallels to the situation in Europe in the late 1930s that some people will find more than a little disturbing. Anytime I hear the word 1930s, I feel a little disturbed. <laughs> and that includes our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, who joins us now for a look back at those years of crisis brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Morning, Dave. Yeah, all of us here today are too young to have any direct experience of Europe in the late 30s, of course. I don't know how much this is taught in high school or college history classes anymore. It's family history for me. Both my parents lived through all this, so I grew up kind of um, hearing about this from people who'd lived through it. I mean, before the U.S. entered World War II after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Europe had been at war for more than two years already and had been in a run-up to war for most of the 1930s. And this guy named Neville Chamberlain, his name always comes up, even now in these times of diplomacy that precede a war. Chamberlain was prime minister of Great Britain, and he had the bad fortune of being in office when Hitler began actively moving beyond Germany's borders. You know, we'll come back to Hitler in a moment, or come back to, yeah, and Chamberlain, of course. Um, Hitler's first big territory grab was in March 1938, when Germany annexed Austria, what they called the Anschluss. Eerily similar to what's going on now, the annexation was in violation of treaties and agreements and included a sham plebiscite or vote among Austrians on the question of whether or not to be absorbed by Germany. And this was all just 20 years after the end of World War I and the Treaty of Versailles, which had penalized Germany for their aggression and created all kinds of new boundaries and new countries in Europe. And it was on that occasion of the Anschluss when Edward R. Murrow and William Shirer of CBS Radio organized the first live roundup of analysis from multiple European capitals. We carried it here on Cairo, of course. Now, one of the speakers in this country was actually a Democratic senator from Washington, a guy named Louis Schwellenbach. He did a really good job predicting the future for Hitler and Europe on March 13, 1938. We cannot deny the fact that Adolf Hitler today is Europe's leader. We tremble at what he will do next. We know what will become of religious liberty in Austria, both for the Jews and the Catholics. It just will not exist. We know what will happen to freedom of speech and of the press. They will be suppressed. Democratic processes for seven million Austrians are extinct. The probabilities are that he will press into Czechoslovakia, Romania, Hungary, and then on into the Ukraine. So, you know, those predictions came true just about six months later in September of 1938. Um, the land Hitler wanted was three separate areas of ethnic Germans, you know, German-speaking people in Czechoslovakia, who he said were being oppressed there by the, uh, by the Czechoslovakians, and he wanted to liberate them and everything. Uh, it was called the Sudetenland, named after a mountain range. He proclaimed the territory was rightfully part of Germany in a speech at Nuremberg in mid-September. That began two weeks of shuttle diplomacy with uh, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain flying back and forth between London and Germany, ultimately giving Hitler everything he wanted. It all ended on September 30th, 1938, with Hitler's assurance to Chamberlain that his territorial expansion would end with the Sudetenland there in Czechoslovakia. Chamberlain famously came back and said there'd be peace in our time. 
Now, this is where Chamberlain, there's sort of mixed mixed uh, verdict on him. Some call him an appeaser because of these negotiations. That this was weakness and only encouraged Hitler to do more. Others say it bought Great Britain critical time to ramp up for the inevitable conflict that was down the road with the Nazis, bought time for their military. And sure enough, you know, the Nazis took the rest of Czechoslovakia in March of 1939. They signed a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union that summer. And then it all sort of kind of went, uh, everything went south and the Nazis invaded Poland on September 1st. That, that, was, that was preceded by false flag operations where they had Nazis pretending to be Polish soldiers attacking uh, parts of the German border. Now, this is part of a speech carried live by CBS um, with live translation. This is Hitler speaking on September 1st, 1939. I don't think we carried this on Cairo. This was too early in the morning. I told the Polish ambassador three weeks ago that if situation continued as it was, if Danzig were persecuted and were, it were attempted by Poland to ruin Danzig economically, the situation could not be tolerated. Anna, did you listen to that Putin speech on Monday? <laughs> yes, I did. It was so bizarrely like this, where you have this guy up there saying all these kind of fake These are history. our people. We share a common yeah. language, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and was... false history about these, this fakely created country. I'm going to rescue them. They need us to protect them. It's all, it was well, the all German happening. staged an attack on a radio station. Exactly. Remember? That was a false flag operation yeah. and, and that, started, that preceded the attack on Poland, which was, you know, was in, the, in planning stages for months, and it was just full military mobilization. Um, and I remember at that you gave a, a speech at that thing out at Vashon when we had the transmitter inaugurated for yeah. the emergency broadcast thing. You talked about how you turned the radio on early in the morning as a reassurance that the world hasn't gone to hell. Yes. My father was just like that, too, because every time he went camping, he always had his radio with him because he's a 16-year-old kid in Poland when this happens, working at an air base. His home burns down. He has to dig his ice skates out of the ashes after the, you know, when the, when the, the flames die down. And there's just a sense of... You know, we don't know what's going to happen at any moment. And the fact that radio can be, you can turn the radio on and hear what's going on is, is still pretty amazing today. And it's, it's scarily like preceding a big conflict where you have, and, and in 1938, the U.S. wasn't a superpower and the Nazis didn't have nuclear weapons. Yeah. So it's a really, it's, the stakes are even higher than they were in 1938. I think it's even scarier than it was probably even during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Well, if you go to Europe and, and visit any of these uh, visit any of these areas, we visited um, Stalingrad at one point, and you talk to people who, at least at that time in living memory, they remember the siege. They remember yeah. the and, and the thing that that people who have been in those war zones have in common is this feeling of absolute helplessness. Yeah, I don't, I don't think any anybody that uh, in this generation quite understands it the way they did. Mm-hmm. It's where you can't get food. Even yeah. if you could afford it, you can't get food. There is no security because, and there are no rules because people are actively trying to kill you yep. just because you're there. I know a little bit of, of, about that feeling because of the 10 days I spent in Baghdad where there was constant uh, mortar fire. And you realize, oh, there's no defense against this except maybe the net on the top of the hotel that was supposed to catch them before they yeah. hit the building yeah. and, and exploded. But there's... There's no one, um, you know, out there saying this is wrong. Don't go killing people. No, it was. It's it's like open season in a war zone, and uh, I, I don't think you forget that if you've been through it. And this notion of all the diplomacy that was going on over the last couple months, the last couple of weeks, and that still apparently is on the table seems impossible with somebody who's a dictator who isn't being truthful, doesn't have any real peaceful aims. They're just simply grabbing territory. It's going to be bizarre to see how this actually rolls out over the next several weeks, what this actually comes to. But there are so many eerie parallels. Not exactly the same, of course. That's dangerous yeah. to make comparisons like that. But 
Boy, we can learn a lot by looking at the late 1930s and Hitler. What are you talking Putin in 2022? Felix Spinell, our resident historian, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. Thanks, Dave. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, the Battery Street Tunnel is long gone, and so is the mysterious secret control room. Wait, I know. I'll go down in the secret room and save the day. Zaba 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 Zoo, secret room, Ala Kazoo. I've got time to talk to you now, gang. So that's how they <laughs> built tunnels back in the day. A miniature living museum lies beneath the sidewalks of Seattle's Belltown neighborhood, and historian Felix Bunnell is here for his Wednesday visit to take us on a tour of the Battery Street Tunnel's secret control room brought to us by the King County <laughs> Library System. Yeah, any excuse to play J.P. Patches and a great uh, star from Cairo's past. So you're familiar with the intersection of 4th and Battery in Belltown? There's yes, a, a fire station there across yeah. the street from the Elephant fire station. Elephant Car Wash. Uh, it's a little bit south of there. Yeah. But uh, there's a cinder block building on the sidewalk there. It's probably about 6 feet wide, maybe 12 feet long, about 8 feet high. It's gray. It has uh, All right, grass, that. glass bricks. That's a control center? Well, I've always wondered what it was. Some people thought it was a slee stack pylon. That's kind of a 1970s television reference to some of our listeners. Um, but the south end of the building has a door that's usually locked. I got to go through it, down the stairs, along the narrow sidewalk, inside the Battery Street Tunnel, with cars speeding past, taking my life in my hands, and through two doors to a secret room that's under the sidewalk there. That's the My tour guide was Rick Rada. He's superintendent for maintenance for WashDOT. Once we were safely ensconced, he told me where we'd ended up and what role it played in keeping drivers safe. This is the control room in the Battery Street Tunnel, um, built in 1954. It looks like very little has changed down here. Not, not much at all has changed. There's a few modern um, electronic devices that have been installed. But other than that, um, all the systems are original, uh, right down to the mercury switches. It's just a, a water uh, system. There's no foam. Uh, that sort of thing. If it reads, uh, you know, temperature rises significantly fast, it'll alarm and uh, trigger a dump of the water system. Uh, heat, you know, fire or smoke will do the same thing. So the fire, they had a, a primitive fire suppression system. Yeah, pretty advanced for 1954, actually, to automatically respond to uh-huh. changes in temperature. And I had no idea this secret room, the official name is the control room, had no idea it was there. I just wanted to see the exits from the tunnel, because you drive past, you see all these signs, that here's how you get out, and I knew that little building was there. Right. But it turns out there was this little living museum down there, and it's sort of the nerve center for the safety systems. There's, you know, controls the lighting, the signage, the ventilation, the fire suppression. It's a small room, but it's packed with all this amazing vintage gear. Most of it is still in working order. There's a cool little desk that's filled with ancient office supplies. There's a vintage <laughs> bathroom, still has all its 1954 plumbing in perfect condition. You'd almost expect to see a 1950s sort of porcelain mug half filled with black steaming coffee there, but <laughs> no such luck in that case. But um, Rick Rada described you know, how it came to be that this little, what he calls a living and working museum, why it's still there in time capsule condition. Instead of spending money knowing that this was going to be decommissioned eventually, um, we have took a, a little bit of that money and I've just been maintaining the system as is, um, um, you know, for the last, what, five to seven years. And it's unclear if the secret room was ever anybody's regular office. I'd love to think that it was, but it probably wasn't. Rick Rada has a theory that it might have, might have had somebody stationed down there for long stretches when the Battery Street Tunnel first opened back in July 1954. Someone who would serve as a backup if those automatic systems didn't work. And 
As it turned out, the day I took that tour uh, of the secret room was just a few days before Rick Rotter retired after 34 years with Washdot. It wasn't the, my tour that forced him to retire. <laughs> it's a coincidence. I asked him if he has any special feelings for the old structures that he spent half his life maintaining. You know, is, is Rick Rotter sentimental? I am. I, I love this. I, I, I love the old, the old structures. This is another one of them. I love the old 520 bridge. It went away. That was sad. I've you know, watched a lot of upgrades over my career. And... Um, this is another one that it's sad to see go away. And of, of course, I couldn't resist. I had to ask one of my trademark irritating questions. Were there ever any great parties down in the secret room of the Battery Street Tunnel? I, I don't know about any parties. Um, but what you see is 1950s vision. This is a time capsule. So it, it, it's kind of neat. It's interesting. And I hope that uh, Mohai or somebody will take some of this stuff and uh, preserve it somewhere. So there's a huge photo gallery at My Northwest. I'm also doing a TV version of the story that will be on the Seattle channel tomorrow night. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it's like this, you know, I do a lot of these stories where I see something that I think is kind of cool by the side of the road and I investigate the history of it. This one just blew me away because here's this little building and it leads down these magical stairs to this just incredible living museum that no one's ever going to actually really ever see. And it's all going to be torn down. I don't know if you've heard, you know, they're tearing down yes. the viaduct and the tunnel. I, I, I've heard. And uh, so none of those proposals, either mine or Danny Westneats or the others to save that tunnel got any traction. Huh? No, I checked again on the website just a few minutes ago and it said that the plans are still to decommission it. You know, and what people forget is when they built the tunnel and the viaduct, that was to bypass Highway 99 traveling on surface streets, even in the 19. 19- yeah. 1940s traffic in Seattle was crummy because the main north-south thoroughfare from Mexico to Canada went pretty much down Fourth yeah. Avenue. Unfortunately, traffic is just beautiful now, so we don't <laughs> don't need a bypass like that anymore. <laughs> so they really are just going to fill it in with wreckage. Uh, I'm not sure what they're going to fill it in, but it's definitely going to go away. I'd love to see this little re- little room preserved somehow. So you know, one one last little fact: Battery Street Tunnel was originally called the Battery Street Subway, all uh-huh. the original signage, because originally it was going to be an open like a cut and cover without the cover. Really? It was going to be cheaper that way, but that they would decided... That would have been horrible. Yeah, it would have been bizarre. It would have made a very noisy area. You could hear the noise in the background on those cuts talking to Rick Rada, but I, I love... You still see that old name Subway on some of the signs and some of the uh, articles from the 1950s. Yeah. Okay, well, use it while you can. Thanks, Felix. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo News Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening, and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. And it is with this thought that we most reluctantly conclude our glimpses of Washington State.